Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today, Dale and I are once again joined by our good friend, Dr. Joe Rigney at Bethlehem College and Seminary, and we're here to talk about Shakespeare. As it turns out, Dr. Rigney has been teaching a course. Is that, is that right, Joe? You're teaching a course on Shakespeare now. Yeah, I, I teach one every year. So I've, ta I've taught uh, a course on Shakespeare for the last, basically it's a two semester. So it's a two semester course or, or pro, two courses, I guess. Um, but I've, I teach it kind of every year to juniors and seniors or seniors usually. Um, and I've been doing that for the last, I don't know, six, six years or so. All right. Yeah. So one of the things obviously we're interested in here is just the, you know, the intersection of, of, of scriptural wisdom and philosophical wisdom. And actually one of the places where these things intersect, of course, is literature. Um, and, and if I recall, your, your, your program uses something of a great books model. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. And so maybe, maybe one way of just, we're going to, we're going to, talk uh, uh, about Julius Caesar in a moment, yeah. but maybe one way of just kind of priming the pumps of our conversation for our listeners would be to ask you uh, on the fly, as it were, to tell us why uh, old books are useful for modern times. Uh, you know, why would, why would we read old literature that's, you know, pre-industrial period? How is that so relevant to this, you know, this moment where, you know, everything seems so different, as it were? Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, Lewis has this great great quote about um, a man who's lived in many places um, is able to recognize the sort of peculiarities of his own, of his own hometown. Mm. Um, and, and then applies that a man who's lived in many centuries um, can also recognize sort of the idiosyncrasies of his own era. And, uh, and so reading old books, at least at one level, that's, that's a big reason is that um, like fish in water, we don't know um, how peculiar we are. And mm. so reading old books is a way of kind of getting outside of our own frame, our, outside of our own context um, and seeing things from a different vantage. You don't even have to leave your house. You could just yeah. get a book. That's right. You don't have to travel across, across an ocean. You just, you just have to get some good books. Um, and so that's, that's one reason is, uh, and, and, and that we, we accent is that there is wisdom to be found in these books and they do help us to understand our own context a little bit better. Um, and then when we think about great books in particular, I think that, there's ways in which, um, you know, books that last, right. Books that resonate, you know, sort of year after year, century after century, there's a lot of garbage that's been written. Um, yeah. and, right. uh, you know, and not just in the last 20 years, like there's lots of garbage that's been written throughout human history. Um, and, uh, and yet there are some books that seem to, um, to last have staying power. And so to be able to go, why, what, what was it about these books that had staying power? Um, in what ways did they resonate with human, um, desires or human uh, wisdom? Um, did they reveal things about the world? Um, and, and, and sometimes it's um, sinful desires. In what ways did this really, you know, this book yeah. might, might, you know, really appeal to certain aspects of human sinfulness. And so we love to keep that one around. And in other ways, it exposes human sinfulness and, and shows us beauty and truth and goodness. And, uh, and so we can find it there. And so when we, when we do it here at, at Bethlehem, um, you know, we teach great books in light of the greatest book for the sake of the great commission so th th that's kind of our that's kind of our tagline oh, cool. that's um, wonderful is we want to read you know great books so i've got my this is i've had this since college so this is book is you know uh almost mm. 20 years old um in my shakespeare classes from college and so we read stuff like this in light of the bible the greatest book um and all for the sake of the great commission and because we think that it really can't help us so in in, in the case of someone like shakespeare um, he gets human nature in a really profound way, yes, right? Yes. He really understands how people work, how societies work. Um, and so his ability to sort of display that on stage or when we're just reading it is really profound and therefore can, can help you wherever you're going, you know, college, you're coming to get educated to become hopefully a certain kind of person. And so the kind of person you're, you want to become is one who gets people. And, uh, and so Shakespeare yeah. can help us uh, understand people so that we can love them, so that we can preach the gospel to them, um, so yeah. that we can serve them in a whole host of ways. But uh, so that's yeah. a little, yeah. little win. And we can and we can use them to sort of reflect on our own selves. Like uh, so, Joe and I were reading through Julius Caesar leading up to the interview, 
And um, <clears throat> one of the things we were talking about last night, as a matter of fact, was how, like you said, he just understands humanness. Like he understands how people, like the motivation of people's hearts. And one of the cool things about stories is what you inevitably do is you connect with a certain figure because it resonates with you on sort of like a real deep visceral level. You're like, yep. ah, I see that in me. Yep. And then you can like project yourself out onto the story of, uh, of, your life and go, what kind of character am I going to end up being? What's my legacy? If somebody wrote, if Shakespeare wrote a play about Joe Rigney, yeah. what, what character would, would, would we all look at and go, Oh man, or, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a good guy. That's right. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess in particular, uh, what is it? Maybe what we can do is this. Why don't for most of the people that um, follow us and the Davenant Institute will probably have some familiarity with Shakespeare yep. and his plays. Uh, but I don't really have a lot of uh, experience with Shakespeare. Um, my son, I think, actually has more than me just because he was, he's been classically trained and he's That's been exposed right. to it all. And I'm just catching up to my 13-year-old. Uh, right. But maybe give us like uh, the, a brief synopsis of what Julius Caesar is about. And then we can talk about some of the themes that Shakespeare hits on. And then we'll talk yeah. about how it relates to our modern age. That's yeah. for the less educated members of our audience who've never read Julius Caesar. Yeah. Hashtag like us. That's uh, right. So I'll, never just, read I'll, just, I'll just pretend like I'm talking to you guys <laughs> in this podcast in which I'm talking to you guys. Mm. Um, right. So, um, so Julius Caesar tells the story of the, um, it's actually a part of a, um, a trilogy, I think. Um, there's a number of scholars who argue that Shakespeare has this Roman trilogy um, consisting of Coriolanus, uh, Julius Caesar and Antony and Cleopatra. And so this is the middle one. And, and uh, Paul Cantor is the scholar who's kind of advanced this most, you know, forcefully. Um, and the idea is that, that Shakespeare sort of highlights these key moments in Rome. Everybody, you know, in Shakespeare's day and up into the modern area, the American founders looks back at Rome and wants to learn from Rome. How, how, do, we, how do we learn um, how to construct a state? What do we learn about human nature? What do we learn about the gods? What do we learn about everything? Um, Rome was sort of this, this big deal. And so they would consult, you know, um, Livy's history and Tacitus's history and Plutarch's lives and all of these sort of um, Suetonius's, the, you know, the lives of the 12 Caesars. And these were massively influential books, Cicero, Quintilian, all of these guys, um, massively influential books on the history of political philosophy, history of philosophy, history of theology, um, and Shakespeare's no different. So, so there's these three kind of key moments uh, in Roman history. Roman history has this sort of this um, early period, um, which leads up to a republic, right? And that's sort of often the sort of the golden age. Um, this is pre-Christian, pre this is BC era of the Roman Republic, which sort of comes to its, uh, so that at one point, Romans basically drive out the kings and establish a senate, and eventually they add to it the tribunes, which are kind of like the House of Representatives, um, representatives of the people as opposed to nobles. And the, the Coriolanus is a story, a uh, play that, that, that uh, Shakespeare does that kind of for that period of time. Then um, as the Republic goes on, it grows, expands, it's really successful, it conquers most of the known world, and you get to Caesar, who is like the conqueror par excellence, right? Yeah. Conquered Gaul, conquered, you know, the whole ancient world, right. you're up to Europe, down into Africa, over to Asia. Um, so you have these conquests, and then you get a shift from the Roman Republic to the Roman Empire. And Caesar is sort of like that, that hinge figure. So Julius Caesar and then his adopted son, Octavian, um, becomes um, that Caesar Augustus. So we all know Caesar Augustus because it was in his, you know, in the reign of Caesar Augustus, Jesus is born. Right. Um, and then from there you get the imperial period where you have a series of emperors. This is our, you know, Nero and Domitian and Diocletian and all of those guys up until Constantine and, and we're on. So Shakespeare kind of uh, takes these hinge moments. So the, the move to kind of the, the true Republic back with Coriolanus and then here the transition from Republic to empire. And so he really draws on Plutarch. Um, so Plutarch is a, an ancient Roman uh, historian who wrote the lives of famous Greeks and Romans. And he would pair them. He would have kind of like a, a famous Greek and a famous Roman, and they would kind of be read in tandem. And he's got uh, a, the life of Julius Caesar, and he's got the life of Brutus, 
who is the famous, you know, friend of Caesar who joins the conspiracy and kills him and assassinates him. So this is the story of Caesar's assassination. It picks up right before the assassination, carries us through the assassination, and then the aftermath of the assassination when Caesar's um, adopted son Octavian, as well as his, um, basically his right-hand man, right? So we bring some Hamilton into this, right? So his right-hand man, Mark Antony, um, sort of take over for Caesar and there's kind of a, a civil war between the forces of Caesar, who's now dead, and then the forces of Brutus and Cassius, the leaders of the conspiracy to assassinate Caesar. So that's, that's kind of the, and then the, those are the play runs from right before the assassination up through the death, middle of the play is the death of Caesar, end of the play is the death of Brutus and Cassius, um, and that, and then exit scene, you know, stage left. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. And I think uh, what's interesting is that there's also a love story going on, uh, but it's a love story between males, their friends. <laughs> right. Uh, and you do watch how that, um, <clears throat> all of the good things that come about, but also uh, how heartbreaking it is when those relationships, when friends are really like torn apart yeah. and, they're, and they're struggling to like keep their relationship together, but it's just, you know, inevitably going to, because you got two sort of alpha males, you yep. know, wanting to vie for power. So yeah. yes, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. What, um, what, maybe one one sort of pre-question before we get into specific themes is, uh, uh, I'm thinking this was if I if I'm recollecting correct, correctly, Shakespeare's writing toward the end of Elizabethan the Elizabethan period. Is that right? Yeah. yeah is so there 1590, any 1600s? Yeah, and, and I'm I'm figuring there's got to be some reading of sort of like clearly the architecture of the play the events themselves are historical based on Plutarch, this sort of thing. Yep. Um, and yet, of course, all the kind of moral things that are put in the mouths of the characters, I'm guessing have some, uh, some reflect uh, on, in, in another direction, something of Elizabethan politics. Is there any uh, uh, sort of speculation along those lines or analysis along those lines? For, for sure. You know, I think in, throughout Shakespeare's plays, you see some of that. Like there's a great scene in, uh, I think it's in Midsummer Night's Dream, where um, one of the characters talks about when Cupid tried to, you know, shoot an arrow um, and and get a, a, a monarch enthroned in the West, and the the chase the the beams of the chase moon knocked the arrow down and it fell into a flower and the flower became a love flower. Um, but there's this sort of hat tip to Elizabeth, right? So this this it's this vir the Virgin Queen. Um, supposedly, I think Midsummer Night's Dream was was first staged. Um, at like a royal wedding or a, a courtly wedding where she mm. was probably in attendance. And so there's this sort of line in there about, you know, Cupid trying to shoot his arrows at the Virgin Queen and she just passes by and doesn't even, doesn't even do it. And you can imagine the actor kind of giving a hat tip to the monarch. So there is stuff like that. I think um, Macbeth is another play um, that folks see a lot of uh, in intrigue there because uh, Macbeth and ba or Banquo, who's a character in that play, um, is I think one of the ancestors of Henry, um, Let's see which Henry, uh, Elizabeth, whoever came after Elizabeth, not, come on, Joe, James, one of, one of the Henry's. King James, it was oh, King okay. James, King James, King yeah. James, as in the that's Bible. What guy. So NIV yeah. in your Bible translation. That's right. So, <laughs> Henry, I'm, I'm in Shakespeare. I'm in Henry V. No, he's not. He was way earlier. So King James um, was, you know, descended from Banquo. And so there's all kinds of stuff about how Shakespeare's now at Caesar, you know, the debates that typically happen around it is whether or not Caesar sides with sort of the, the monarchists or the imperialists in this case, the folks who would sort of be on Caesar's side because Caesar looks like he's ambitious and wants to become the, the Caesar, right? It's when your last name becomes a title, you've made yeah. it, right? Yeah, so right. <laughs> Julius Caesar. And then after that, there's like, yeah, we're just going to stick with that. He be, Caesar's a name and it becomes a title. Um, and, uh, and then on the other hand, you've got sort of the Republicans, little case, little case R, um, who are represented sort of the historic Roman ideal of the, the um, self-rule citizenship governance and things like that, that, that Bruce and Cassius represent. And so there's, there's debate. And of course, this is, these are live debate, debates in Elizabethan England over the relationship between parliament and the monarch. And, right. how, and, and then how do the people fit into that? And so a lot of Shakespeare's plays um, sort of navigate those three different realms, um, a monarchical figure, um, 
sort of senatorial, that's a parliamentary figure, and then the crowds, and sometimes they'll have representation. And so you can hear in that, um, you know, British history with House of Lords, House of Commons, monarch. Um, and then you can hear, of course, American history in, in a similar kind of way, since we have the same kind of legacy in our own, right. in our own Interesting. way. Interesting. Interesting. Mm. Well, maybe that's a good, a good segue then in just to getting into the content of the play itself. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, one could, one could talk ad nauseum about any particular Shakespeare play because there's so much in each yeah. of them. But what, what, what is it about Julius Caesar for you? Uh, like, it seems like you have a, a particular interest in this particular play. And so what, what captures you thematically about about this particular one? Yeah, so I, I really like the, the way that this one weaves together that sort of personal and the political. So, so Rome, th this is a play about Rome in crisis. Uh, it opens with um, sort of the, the craftsmen of the town having put on their Sunday best and they're out ready to celebrate a party, you know, have a, have a big parade because Caesar's coming back in triumph, which is something that's happened a bunch because Caesar's conquered a lot of places. Right. The problem is, in this case, the who he conquered was the previous ruler, right? He yeah. conquered Pompey the Great and had just defeated him. And yet um, this is treated by the the, um, the craftsman as sort of like a really great thing, um, like as if he had just conquered um, France, you know, the Gauls. Um, and uh, and so there's the tribunes who actually the, the, the opening guys who kind of rebuke the craftsmen for their why are you doing this? You guys used to celebrate Pompey coming home with conquest. And now Caesar just conquered Pompey and you're celebrating again. Like what gives here guys? Um, right. Sort of the representatives of the people, but the people have kind of like shifted allegiances to, to Caesar. And of course people just like parades, right? People just want to. Yeah, win right. right. Um, but one of the things I think uh, Shakespeare's doing there is showing that Rome's in a state of crisis. Nobody knows what's up and what's down. There's lots of turbulent, lots of um, drama, one of the phrases for this among, um, you know, there's a particular Shakespearean uh, scholar, René Girard, that I appreciate a lot of his, his insights. And uh, Girard calls this a crisis of degree, meaning, um, so degree is, is the Shakespearean term for cultural order. It's kind of the, um, basically, if you think about, uh, it, it operates like gravity. It's, it's the sort of thing uh, in, a, in another play. Um, it's like the sun makes all of the, all of the planets sort of uh, orbit properly so that they don't run into each other. So all the planets orbit properly because there's some kind of force that keeps them in their proper place. And, and Shakespeare's term for that is degree with a capital D. And, uh, and yet when degree is shaked or when degree is visited, covered over, when degree, you know, comes apart, all of the planets start to kind of careen out of control and smash into each other. Um, and so that's, and that's called a, a crisis of degree and, and a number of Shakespeare's plays, I think show that kind of crisis. Mm -hmm. This is, this is one of them. And so I love that, that aspect of it is Rome's in crisis. How's this going to play out? But then the way that then the personal gets woven into, like you mentioned, these relationships between say Brutus and Cassius, the two kind of chief conspirators, um, or the relationship between uh, Antony, uh, who's Caesar's successor and how he kind of steps in to the big stage after Caesar's killed. Um, and, and then how he relates to Caesar's adopted son. There's some personal elements here that really are fascinating to watch as he brings both the personal and political to life. Yeah. yeah that's, and that's an interesting element of um, very often when we talk about politics, it seems to me, we talk very much at the level of uh, principle and not at the level of personal, not that those are intrinsically <laughs> intention. But what's interesting is you get, this is, this is such an, you know, you feel like you're watching a sort of an ancient ver or reading an ancient version of House of Cards. Yeah, or something yeah. Like, right. that, like you realize that real politics, when things actually get done, uh, it really is like smoking in a back room and handshake, you know, handshakes. That yeah. really is the work of, of uh, real world Paul at some level, uh -huh. the political is an outflow of some that going on somewhere. That's right. uh, and I think in Julius Caesar, what's interesting is that <clears throat> when they're trying to put the conspiracy together, Brutus is very hesitant at first, mm -hmm. and he's really not. So in like modern politics now with this, you know, back dark room, smoking a cigar, shaking hands and, you know, hatching the next plan for world domination or whatever. Uh, a lot of times we, we envision that as totally uh, against virtue. Yeah. With with Brutus, however, he was motivated like the, the 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 way that he was convinced was an appeal to virtue for Rome. Yeah. Right. Like he thought he was doing something good for the people. Yeah. 
Yep. And and he regrets it afterwards in some capacity because he's like, maybe this wasn't the greatest idea, guys. Yeah. You know, everything is sort of falling apart. Uh, but I think um, if we if we are trying to draw uh, an analogy between ancient Rome and then our modern political context, it we I guess we just have to say even the most heinous uh, act of betrayal back in uh, the Roman Empire was nevertheless informed by a robust movement towards the good because they were just oriented differently than a modern man is, I think. Um, so, yeah, well, or, so at least, or at least they were multiply motivated, like some were seemingly more motivated toward the good than others, yeah. but could nevertheless have a common uh, act to perform. Yeah, right. Well, and, well so one of the big, uh, you know, obviously the Brutus and Cassius, the two chief conspirators are, are sort of seen as foils for one another. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the, the play is obviously called the tragedy of Julius Caesar, but of course Caesar's dead by the middle of act three or right. the beginning of act three. And then it's actually, so when you, when you actually look at it, 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 it there's a way in which this is really the tragedy of Brutus, hmm. right? In other words, Brutus is the character from act one to act five, who's sort of there all along the way. Yeah. Um, right. and, and he's sort of, in some ways, Caesar's counterpart. Um, and, uh, and so, um, and it's sort of Caesar's ghost that appears to him and says, I'm your evil spirit, Brutus. And right. so there's this sort of twinning idea happening there between Brutus and yeah. Caesar that's, that's really fascinating. But, but one, of the, one of the interesting questions about the play is, you know, on, I, so I would assume you guys read it, and I assume as you, as you looked yeah. at Cassius and Brutus, um, so, you know, you guys aren't shaking, who, who did you like better? Like of Cassius, when you're watching the conspirators, who were you drawn to? So Cassius, Cassius, it seems to me, is given given lines. Cassius is given lines that um, like he he strikes me as far more sinister. Yeah. So okay. it's like, and, and his lines are very overtly sort of like, as soon as Brutus leaves the room and he gives his little speech about what's really going on, you yep. know, you you see this character, and even and even his kind of manipulative putting his own motivations in Brutus's mouth, right? It's yep. sort of a, it's sort of like, why should the name of Brutus not be sounded the same as Caesar's? And yep. really you can tell he's kind of asking why shouldn't the name of Cassius be yeah, yeah. you know, but he's trying to kind of, kind of psychologically manipulate his pal. Um, yep. Whereas Brutus, Brutus, it's, he's a harder to read character because on the one hand, you could argue that like, there's a way in which he's, um, he's self-deceived perhaps, but yep. it's not as obvious because he doesn't ever seem to lose. Uh, and it almost, almost in a harmful way, he doesn't ever really seem to lose some kind of like self-conscious moral center. Uh, and in fact, uh, one of the most interesting things that seems to me in the play is how that sort of uh, uh, hinders kind of cutthroat politics. So for instance, Cassius, Cassius wants immediately to say like, once we kill Caesar, let's kill Mark Antony too. Like, let's yeah, get right. rid of him. Right. And it's Brutus who says like, no, you know, we, you know, the kind of just war almost, right? Just war would only allow us to go this far, but not that far. And yet Cassius, if you just want to win and that's yeah. it, and you don't care about the good, uh, you probably should have killed Mark Antony. That's right. That's right. So <laughs> yeah. it, it's fairly clear that, you know, Cassius sees the that Antony is right off the bat and therefore wants to deal with the threat. Whereas Brutus wants, really does seem to think we can steer this sort of middle course. He's a, he's a moderate revolutionary. He's a yes. moderate assassin, um, which yeah. makes him more interesting because then he's conflicted. Cassius just wants to get it done. He's very practical. Um, in fact, you know, and see, and what's interesting is that Caesar recognizes that about Cassius at the beginning. He, he leans over to Mark Anthony and says, I don't like the way that guy looks. He doesn't like, he doesn't like to go to plays. <laughs> Right, right. So there's yes. a little wink at the audience there. Like Cassius is yes. sort of guy. He doesn't. He doesn't laugh easily. He doesn't like to read books. Or, and, or you know, he. Uh, what, what's the line? He says. Um, oh, he reads too much. <laughs> right. He's yeah. a great observer. He looks quite through the deeds of men. He loves no plays as thou dost, Antony. He hears no music. Seldom he smiles, and smiles in such a sort as if he mocked himself and scorned his spirit that could be moved to smile at anything. So Cassius, you know, in other words, Caesar recognizes he's kind of. He's lean and hungry like a wolf and yes. recognizes the threat. But what's interesting then is that Caesar goes on and says, you know, um, we, you know, he, he, he's, we ought to be afraid of him. And he says, but I'd rather tell thee what is to be feared than what I fear for always I am Caesar. In other words, Caesar's going, I, 
he would be scary, but of course I'm Caesar. So right. I'm not afraid and has to kind of put on the show of the untouchable, invincible Colossus. Right. Um, right. And what's right after that, and, and this seems to be a theme almost in the play is uh, Mark Antony sort of says, actually, I don't think you need to be very worried about him. Uh -huh. uh, and, and the amount of times that happens in the play where characters say, don't worry about this, and you should totally worry about yeah, that. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Joe, Joe said uh, uh, that Brutus was sort of self-deceived. And I think, Joe, you've mentioned something similar. Yes. So, because um, I'm, I'm very interested in that. I like to, I, I thought that Brutus was the more um, virtuous noble, character. Yeah. yeah, noble, honor, uh, loyalty, um, has a heart for order, doesn't want to see everything fall apart. Uh, whereas Cassius is sort of like utilitarian and just got, and you, and the thing is, is like in order to have a good project where you're organizing human beings in some sort of way, you, you actually need both of those characters. Yep. Uh, because without them, you, you, you could fall into, you know, one weakness is to be so hesitant to move when you need to move mm. uh, that you really don't capture the moment. And then the other one is like you move too fast when you should have relaxed for a moment and watched and see how everything played out and put the pieces on the chessboard where they belong in order to like get the king when you yep. need to get the king. Um, but, uh, so with Brutus's self-deception, talk to, talk to us yeah. a little bit about that. So good. So, yeah. so at one level, one of the ways, you know, you can read the play, uh, is, you know, Cassie is basically like a serpent and Brutus is Adam and Eve. And so Cassius is coming to tempt Brutus in his nobility mm -hmm. to do this horrible thing. Right. So Cassius is serpent like you know, seeding, tempting, drawing away Brutus from, from the good and says, Hey, we need to get rid of Caesar. Um, and I think that there, you know, I think at one level, and Brutus is sort of this noble character who falls for it and then rues it because he ends up getting killed in the end as well. The, the, and I think there's, there's truth to that. I think that like, with, if you watch the play, if you ever watch an, a performance of this, you should come away feeling like, man, I, Brutus was my guy. But what's interesting um, is on a careful reading um, or careful watching of the play, there's these moments like early on, um, you know, uh, Brutus is kind of like, I'm not gamesome. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, kind of sad. And Cass is like, how come, man? Let's talk about this. Are you mad at me? No, I'm not mad at you. I'm just got thoughts on my mind. What's he thinking about? And then all of a sudden, um, he and Cassie's is like, hey, let me tell you how great you are, man. Let me hold up a glass and let me be your mirror and show yeah. you how awesome you yeah. are. So yeah. this flattery sort of thing. And so we can see that. But then off stage, you hear a big shout. Caesar's off stage with Anthony and the crowds. You hear a big shout. And Brutus says this, what means this shouting? I do fear the people choose Caesar for their king. Now that's interesting. It's an interesting tell right there, right? Like you hear a shout off stage and the fir his first thought is they're going to make Caesar king. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting. So what's he been turning over in his mind? What's, what's the thought? It's the thought that Caesar might be king and Cassius seizes on this. Oh, you fear that? Let's that, then you don't want it to happen. And, uh, and then Brutus, you can see the tension. And I think this is where the self deception comes into play is, you know, I would not want Caesar to be king Cassius yet. I love him. Well, why do you want me? What is it that you would impart to me? And then this is a key, a key thing. Um, this is Brutus to Cassius. What, why did you keep me here? If it be aught toward the general good, set honor in one eye and death in the other, and I will look on both indifferently. For let the God so speed me as I love the name of honor more than I fear death. In other words, hmm. why did you keep me here? They're just talking. And then, so this thing off stage, why did you keep me here? If you've got something for me to do, then, you know, and in, in the, for the common good, for the general good, for, for honor, I'm in. Now, the interesting thing about that is that what he just did was say, hey, Cassius, if you want to get me to do something, just couch it in terms of honor and I'm in. Like, in other oh, words, he, he lays out the pathway for his own temptation. Um, and so that's what Cassius does. He says, well, I do have, as a matter of fact, yeah. I've, got, <laughs> right. I've got a whole general good yeah common yes. good, liber, liber, the good of Rome, liberty sort of task for you to do. It's going to be hard though. I think you know what I mean, don't you? And it, shout off stage. I think they're making him king. And so you can just see on the one hand, yeah. um, the way I would describe it is the tension in Brutus is the sort of story he's telling himself is I am the noble Roman who cares about liberty, who cares about the good, who cares about virtue oh. I'm, and honor. And yet there's this sort of envy of Caesar sort of lurking in there. Caesar's getting all of the accolades. Caesar's, the crowds love him. Caesar, Caesar, Caesar. They want to make him king. 
and there's an envy and it's this tension between like, I can't act on this. I want to be this guy. But at the same time, if I can act on this in the name of these higher motives, yes, right, right. then I will do so. Um, but then he's got to sort of keep up the facade. And so this is why throughout the play, you see Brutus always trying to like thread this needle where they're doing something that, you know, morally speaking is just wicked, like to assassinate the ruler because and even when and brutus knows this when when he's trying to describe he has this little soliloquy where he's describing the reasons and it's all maybe mites would coulds and shoulds like right, right. like caesar could uh become a tyrant um he might right. you know you know uh let's see here he is um he would be crowned how, how that might change his nature. Like if they give him a crown, yeah. then he might become a tyrant. And if a he becomes a strike, exactly. Right. This is, this is sort of what's that old, what's the movie, the Tom Cruise movie, uh, is it minority report where yeah. it's like pre pre crime, like yes. we're going to, we're, we're executing the guy for the crimes he might commit if, if he's crowned King. But if you notice the language is act two, scene one, um, crown him. Ah, then, then he'd have a sting. He would abuse his greatness. And he's like, I, I, don't, I haven't known that Caesar's affections have been swayed more than his reason, but you know, it's a common proof that lowliness is young ambition's ladder. And then the climber upward gets to the top, turns his face and kicks the ladder away. Hmm. And so he's like, Caesar's going to climb up and he's going to be, it's going to be good. But once he gets up there, he's going to turn around and kick the ladder away. And he's going to be the tyrant just like, and this is Cassius saying he's a Colossus and everybody sort of cowers before Caesar. And, and so Caesar may, and then lest he may prevent. So he might become a tyrant and therefore lest he become a tyrant will keep him from becoming a tyrant and therefore he has to die. And so that right. kind of, it's, and, and you can just see there, I think a rationalization. Yes. Right. This isn't actually reasoning. This is rationalizing. And so rationalizing what? It's these envious desires, which he shares with Cassius, but can't admit in the way that right. Cassius and Casca and the other conspirators can. And they have a, they, he has a, um, if, if I recall correctly, both the, and Shakespeare would know this, I, I'm, I'm sure, uh, the historical Cassius and the historical Brutus were philosophers. Yeah. Brutus, I think, a Stoic and Cassius, if I recall, converted to Epicureanism. Uh, but you almost, yeah, you almost get the sense that they're, that he's, you know, that reading of it, that's very interesting that he's kind of instrumentalizing, uh, and you see him appeal to it many times. The, the, the language of, of kind of late antique moral philosophy is just dripping in all of uh -huh. his little speeches, but he's sort of instrumentalizing the whole of that tradition for, I think what you're saying, and that's such an interesting reading, in fact, because- yeah it's never quite overtly on his lips. He never comes to just the self-confrontation on that reading where it's like, this is what, this is, this is what's really going on with me. Uh, yeah. But he instrumentalizes quite an extraordinary knowledge and some, some level of virtue that exists somewhere in himself, but it's, but it's, it's layered and it's. Yeah. And, and the way that I read that, the, the way that I read him, uh, Brutus, on that was very different. And that is fascinating because I, I sort of read it as, and maybe this speaks to my own sort of political instincts. Uh, I, I thought he was saying, oh, no, he could become king. And kings, we've found out, are not the thing that are good for Rome. And if someone gets to the point of being a monarch, then we've seen the terror that that can you know, cause. And so it's not necessarily Caesar qua Caesar. It's like the idea of a monarch is what he's scared of, because once a man comes to have possess all this power human nature gets bent and they inevitably turn into tyrants at one degree or another yes I, so I, that's so I, I think that's right i think that's that's exactly the reasoning he's giving is tyrant you know if you make a man a king he'll become a tyrant we know this is so by history now the right. question is what do you do with that knowledge um how what what actions do you take given that right. danger is it assassinate the guy who's one step away from being the seat being the, the emperor being the king or is it something else? Because one of the interesting things about the play, and, and we can talk about this too, is the, the role of the crowds. Yeah. Because it's, it's quite clear that the crowds, whatever else you may say about them, want the Caesar, right? As soon as, as, soon as you know, they, they want to make Caesar king, yeah. he's dead. Then they're like, let, let him be Caesar. Talking about Brutus. And then once Antony wins him back, then, okay, let's put this guy in charge. And it's so yeah. at some level, the, the, the sort of the idea of the, of the Rome that doesn't want a Caesar, that doesn't want a king is dead. Yeah. It's gone. And yet, and yet he wants to still appeal as though it's still alive 
uh, a live issue. And yeah. instead, instead he attacks the guy who maybe could be, might be become a tyrant. Yeah. It reminds me of that. Uh, I don't know if this is an actual Henry Ford quote, but um, when asked why he made the Model T, uh, because people didn't want it. He goes, well, if I would have asked people what they wanted, they would have told me they wanted faster horses, right? right? Yeah. So like the, the people, and I think that this really does get into the modern day sort of political yeah. context yeah. is, and we've seen this is, you know, for the last five years now, is that there is something to appealing, there's something political, uh, politically expedient about being the popular one. Yeah. Uh, but just because someone's popular doesn't mean it's necessarily the right thing to do. Right. And this is why uh, we need sages and we need wise men and we need ph good philosophers that can help chart out all the ethics and all the sticky stuff. Uh, but nevertheless, like if I read Brutus in the best light I possibly can and say, well, yeah, you shouldn't have killed the dude. Uh, nevertheless, he was really acting on behalf of the people, even if it was apparent that he was uh, working against what they're saying with their lips. Yes. Like, oh, these children don't even understand what they're asking for. Yeah. And I have to help them because they don't, they, they're not there yet. They're just whipped up into a, an emotional frenzy or whatever. Well, One of the, oh, go ahead, Joe. Well, so, I mean, I think, I think when you, when you look at Brutus's words, as he talks about, you know, why he's going to do it, he starts talking about, let, let's fashion it thus, right? So there's this um, fashion is thus that what he is, Caesar augmented, in other words, if he becomes more than he is, would run to these and these extremities and therefore think him as a serpent's egg, which hatched would as his kind grow mischief, mischievous and let's kill him in the shell. So that's the idea is that Caesar is an, is an, as an a serpent in the egg kill, you know, kill it in the cradle. Don't let it grow up. Um, but notice he, he describes it as let's fashion it thus. In other words, this is again, kind of the, the story we need to tell, which is then why later, whenever they're in the middle of the conspiracy, he's very adamant about let's be sacrificers, not butchers, right? Yeah. This is, you know, and there's this sort of notion of there's a right, he thinks there's a right way to sort of pitch this to the people. And, uh, and, and the sacrifice is not bu uh, butcher's piece is a big part of that. Otherwise we'll be thought murderers, uh, not um, uh, liberators, purgers, right? He's, so he, he, this is in 2-1 again. He says, uh, if we kill Antony along with Caesar, we'll seem too bloody. Let's be sacrificers, but not butchers. Um, let, let's kill him boldly, but not wrathfully. Let's carve him as a dish fit for the gods, not right. hew him as a carcass fit for hounds. Um, let our hearts, as subtle masters do, stir up their servants to an act of rage and after seem to chide them. Yeah. And that's what that, that all our assassins were so noble and great. Right. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. But, but even, even there, let's after seem to chide them. Like, let's stir ourselves up to a rage so that we can kill the guy yeah. and afterwards sort of go, bad hand. Why did you, why did you stab that guy? Um, this shall make our purpose necessary and not envious. And I just think there, there's, you know, the lady protests too much he thinks right like yeah if you're going, this is going to look envious and it's like well because it kind of is and so right. again i think there's a way in which brutus knows that he's private you know motivated by envy and ambition in the same way caesar is but he doesn't want to know that he knows it there's a yeah right there's a there's a calculated self-manipulation happening here a strategic self-deception these are all um tony tanner is a, a shakespearean has a book on prefaces to Shakespeare, where it goes into some of that about the strategic self-deception of Brutus. Um, that's that's really interesting in light of, um, you know, you mentioned the crowds, and one of the things I find so interesting, especially in uh, 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 the Gospel of Luke and in the Book of Acts, is how how the and this is true in all the Gospels, but how the crowds play a rhetorical role. There's yeah. sort of Jesus and then the, the the religious leaders and then there's the people who are just always kind of standing around. And it has very much this dynamic, like you can always see the Pharisees sort of, they, they're, they're both kind of ruling the crowd, but they're also afraid of them in a certain sort of way. Yeah. And they have to navigate this kind of really circuitous, these really circuitous rhetorical moves for fear of the crowds yes. uh, and sort of play them in that way. One of the one of the things just uh, just uh, you know kind of bringing this current you know current in some way is I, I was really thinking about the theme of winning. You, you were just mentioning, and I, I guess I hadn't thought of that. You're just mentioning the play sort of opens with Caesar winning, 
you know, yeah. he's coming back in victory. And that's precisely what stirs the crowd up. Here's the winner. The guy, yeah. like he's won the battle and we're Romans, he's us. And so there's just this kind of nativist, uh, you know, sort of like, hey, our, God, our team is winning. This is fantastic. Um, but what's, what, what's interesting is that there's a, there's a way in which, you know, again, I guess I'm thinking of just war theory, but we don't even need to put it that theoretically. Uh, there's a way in which, you know, you can't, the Christian can't win at all costs. Like, in other words, there's a, there's a limitation where we say like, you know what, if, if, if winning the political battle or winning whatever battle it is requires making this move, then clearly God would not have me in his providence win this battle right now because right. I can't go there. And Brutus is sort of like ostensibly playing that line. I'll yes. go this far. I'll, I'll, I'll do this one strike with the dagger. And if I have to go further than that, I'd rather lose. Whereas Cassius is sort of like the, he's the win at all costs guy. Yep. And that is in the real world, in the real political world. And that's one way in which this is sort of a tragedy about the world itself yeah. is that that kind of approach to politics and to, to real world power is a kind of winning strategy. Uh, if you really are willing to kill all your enemies <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and you're good at it, uh, well, you know what? That's actually a pretty good way to, you know, be in charge, I suppose. Uh, yeah, no, that, that's absolutely. It's kind of confronting you with the, you know, you, you, you understand the motivation to get rid of the Caesar. We, we all get why that might seem like a, an, uh, for the greater good project. Uh, and yet you're confronted with the means the means that are actually required for you to do that are are soul damaging in some way. That's uh, right, and and they don't stay put. I think one of the things about you know whatever Brutus's intentions are in trying to navigate this inner tension, you know, he talks about his genius and his mortal instruments. So his 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 reason and then his sort of bodily passions being at war like a little kingdom. There's an insurrection inside of him, which is sort of a microcosm of what's happening in the broader political sphere. Um, However that plays out, his intent is sacrifice or not butcher, carve him up, explain it to the people, liberty, you know, they, you know, you have this great, you know, pre-French revolution, liberty, equality, you know, they're marching yeah. through the streets, you know, a hundred and, you know, what, 180 years before the French revolution. Um, and uh, that Shakespeare's writing this. And then um, you think about these different progressions though uh, in the play. So you think about the, like when it comes to this conspiracy, Cassius has to kind of work pretty hard to get Brutus in, right? He's yeah. got to like, they're throwing little love notes into the windows, like Brutus, you're awesome, Brutus, you're awesome. You're, <laughs> right. if, if you can only see yourself. Like they're, they're tempting him every which way to get him in. And then once he's in though, everybody else just kind of home, right? To the point where there's one guy, Ligarius, he's my favorite, who he doesn't, he's not there for the conspiracy party where they're making the plan, but um, he comes later and walks in and, and Brutus, is like something for you to do and he's like whatever it is i'm in he didn't even ask he's like, <laughs> he doesn't need to know because brutus is in and so one of the one of the things that the the play demonstrates pretty effectively is that power of of conspiracy and peer pressure that's what that's mm. the modern way we talk about it yeah. the way that you know once and cassius knows this if we can get brutus in then everybody will just kind of there's a gravitational pull that his virtue mm. will bring and it will cover over and they even start talking about let's you know, there's a great little scene where Cassius and Brutus are kind of vying for power where, where they're asking, I think, should we get Cicero? You know, his gray, you know, he's got a gray head. He's an old guy. Um, he could he could speak for us and, and represent our cause and get him. And all the conspirators are like, yeah, Cassius, let's get him. And then Brutus says, no, let's not. And immediately they're like, yeah, let's not. And it's this yeah. very, <laughs> it's this very duffel puds like moment, you know, from I always think about that from Lewis and in, in Narnia. You know, the duffel puds are the ones who always whatever the chief says, they just echo it. Right. Yes. And so you've got these conspirators just echoing whichever, you know, alpha male is most persuasive or compelling in the moment. But yes. you get this, so this progression of the conspiracy takes a lot of effort to get the first guy. And then all of a sudden it's like, boom, boom, boom. And it just sucks everybody in. Yeah. yeah. The, the other, the other progression that's really fascinating is Brutus thinking if we just kill him and leave Anthony out, don't go, we're not going to go, you know, all of Caesar's followers, let's go, you know, um, run them out of town or whatever. Let's just kill the one guy, explain it. And then everything, and then, Hey, we're all free now. Everybody calm back down, go back to work. Yeah. But what's interesting is after Mark Antony gets a hold of him, right. And he sort of wins the crowd back. Um, you know, they're, you know, let, you know, at first the crowds are like, don't Brutus or Antony better not say anything bad about Brutus. Brutus is an honorable man. 
Um, and that's Brutus's appeal. He's like, Caesar was ambitious. He's got two arguments. Why did I, why did we do it? Caesar was ambitious and on my honor. So it's an ethical, you know, if you think classical rhetoric, there's an ethos appeal. I'm Brutus guys. Come on. I'm honorable. Right. And Caesar was ambitious. And so, and then he's like, who here wants to be a slave? And of course, nobody's going to raise their hand to that. Anybody want to be in shackles? Nope. Mm. Well, if, if any of you wanted to be slaves, I've wronged you. Yeah. I just set you free. Right. And nobody's going to, and so they, ah, there's a lot of reason in that. They, they're persuaded. Antony gets up there and he's got one, you know, he's got to say, Brutus says I can speak and I can't say anything bad about Brutus and this infinite conspirators. That's, that's the one stricture. I can say all the good I want about Caesar. I can't say anything bad about, um, about the conspirators. And, and he does like he, he, he says, Brutus is an honorable man, but as he's telling the story, it's just this masterclass of manipulating the mob. As he's yeah. like, you know, I come right. to, you know, I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil men do lives after him. The goods often turd with their bones. So leave the good. I just, I just want to praise Caesar. Um, and then he's like, you know, he did bring many captives home to Rome. He won a lot of battles. Um, but Brutus says he was ambitious and Brutus is an honorable man. So he, he gives Brutus his argument, but he's constantly undermining it. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Look at all the good, you know, when the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept. Was that ambitious? Well, I mean, you know, Brutus, Brutus says he was ambitious and Brutus is an honorable man. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and, he, and then he basically wins the crowd back. Now, the interesting escalation that happens from there is the very next scene after Anthony work, you know, works them back up. You know, the, the way to the way to get the crowd is to make the crowd think that they're leading you. Right. So the whole yes. time Anthony's constantly putting himself at the mercy of the crowd and saying, do you want me to come down? Do you want me to do this? And they're like, yes. And so. So they're leading him as he's sort of pulling the puppet strings. And then he turns them loose to sort of burn the city and find the conspirators. The very next scene, I think, is one of the most powerful in all of, in all of Shakespeare, quite honestly. And it's this, it's this scene after the assassination when Anthony sort of let mischief, you know, cry havoc, let slips the dogs of war. And, uh, and then there's this scene where Sinna the poet is, uh, is sort of walking out. He doesn't know why. Something leads me forth. And this sort of crowd of... Uh, plebeians surround him and they say what's your name where are you going where do you dwell are you a married man or a bachelor answer every man directly i and briefly and wisely and truly yeah come on answer us and he sent us and you can just imagine the sort of this crowd surrounding yeah. sinners he's backed up into a corner like this right um and then he says what's my name where am i going you know where do i where do i dwell am i a married man or a bachelor okay to answer every man directly and briefly wisely and truly okay wisely i say I i'm a bachelor and then the guy goes, well, that's as much to say that they are fools that marry. Right? You know, sort of like, you know, are you a bachelor? <laughs> right. Okay, I, I'm a bachelor. So you're saying everybody who's, uh, who's uh, married is a fool? You know, and it's yes. just that kind of like, and it's like, that's just Twitter, y'all. Like, that's just Twitter. Yes, right that's there. right. So you're yes. saying this. Okay, go ahead. What else? Uh, well, I'm going to Caesar's funeral as a friend or an enemy. As a friend, I'm on Caesar's side, guys. Don't, don't get me. And okay, where do you dwell? By the capital? Okay, what's your name? My name is Cinna. And then this is the great part. Tear him to pieces. He's a conspirator because one of the conspirators name is Cinna. Okay. So there's a conspirator mm, named Cinna. Right. This is a poet. He's not a conspirator. Right. Hey, my name's same name. And they say, tear, same name. And they say, tear him to pieces. He's a conspirator. And then Cinna says, I'm Cinna the poet. I'm Cinna the poet. Tear him for his bad verses. Tear him for his bad verses. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> and he's like, but I'm not Cinna the conspirator. It doesn't matter. His name is Cinna. Pluck his yes. name out of his heart and turn him going, and then they they attack him and they tear him to pieces. And it's, he's this, this this totem lightning rod, you exactly. know, is all he becomes. Yeah, exactly. And yes. and you can see, and I, and those scenes are juxtaposed with the assassination of Caesar, which took all of this forethought, rationalization, justification, got to have good reason, ah. etc. But once you've sort of let that cat out of the bag, then it's like any pretext will do. Like, in yeah. other words, there's not a whole lot of difference from a, from a moral or, or rational perspective yeah. between what the crowds did to Sinna the poet, tear him for his bad verses, and what the conspirators did to Caesar, because it was all would, could, shoulds, maybes, and mights there, mm. right? Both of them are rationalized, and mm. Shakespeare juxtaposes, and that once you start operating that way, it's just unleashed. Then the next, yeah. la last, last bit here. Yeah, go ahead. The, the next scene is really, is, is the final part of the progression is Antony and Octavius and Lepidus. These are the opponents of Cassius and Brutus. And they're sitting around and they're going like, um, okay, this, this guy down, he's got to die. Well, then your brother's got to die too. 
You consent to that? Well, yeah, but then if, if my brother dies, then your cousin has to die. Okay, right. yeah, he can go, he can die too. And there's, <laughs> yes, there's yes. This sort of like, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of like this, um, you know, communistic, you know, think communist Nazi sort of like, check the box, kill the dude, check the box, kill the, and it's just become commonplace, right? right. It's, it's, it's like they're filling out TPS reports, but they're marking down people to be executed. And right. so this right. is sort of like what's been unleashed is all of the effort it took to kill one guy. And then it's like mobs killing guys for any reason. And now it's just mark him down. Well, why? Because, well, because you said my brother has to die. So your cousin has to die. And, and yes. it's callousness that's been unleashed um, in, in the crisis. And I think Shakespeare just gets that. Um, yeah. So go ahead. That's yeah, I was just going to say it's, it's, it's an interesting way in which the, the crowd is actually following the leadership. And this is one of the precisely, uh, uh, and, but but it looks different when the crowd follows the leadership. And this is just something that I think is so crucial, especially you mentioned Twitter, you know, especially in our age where where being a leader is such a it's a public thing in a way that's hard to calculate now because there's there's Twitter and Facebook and podcasts. If you're a, if you're a, if you're a, a public teacher of any kind or a politician, even your your public presence is just everywhere and therefore your your rhetoric like there's this there's this perhaps i think lack of gravity that we have about thinking about the 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 responsibility that that has been thrust upon you rhetorically uh when what it means to be a leader in the world is quite frankly to have your words inevitably thrown everywhere contextless Right. And, and if you're sure. trying to lead well, you have to be very, very careful. Um, and, and I think what we see is, well, I mean, it's, it, and I'm not, this is, this is not a, a left thing or a right thing. This is an everybody thing. But, but you see a kind of unleashed rhetoric uh, that uh, looks a certain way when it's in sort of academies. But when it filters down to the Twitter mob, to the ground, uh, it doesn't take on any of the nuance, all the hues go away, yeah. and we're just left with this frenzy that yeah. really is in part stirred up by leadership, yeah. uh, uh, in part stirred up by leadership. And um, yeah, it's a very, uh, there's a long-winded way really of saying it's a very interesting depiction of how, uh, how rhetoric can be, you know, I'm reminded of Pascal saying, imagination, you know, Pascal has this extended reflection on how the imagination is the worst thing ever because it deceives us. And yet it's also the only thing I've got, yeah, <laughs> you right. know? And I think yeah. the same thing with rhetoric, right? If you're going to communicate the truth, yeah. actually rhetoric is incredibly important, but the greater you become at rhetoric, actually the more powerful you become toward evil as well, right. because you can instrumentalize all of these tools to kind of whip up people and uh, yeah, yeah. Which, is what, which is what Anthony does, right? I mean, yes. he's, he's 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 playing this whole, he's acting. I mean, that's what he's doing is he's acting for the crowds and sort of dangling out them. Hey, if, if only I could read you what was in Caesar's will, you would weep your eyes out. But I can't tell you, I'm not going to tell you. And so there's a sort of like playing hard to get. And then they're like, tell us, you must tell us. Okay, you want me to tell you? He gives you, you know, 75 drachmas, which I don't, you know, it's it's like he gives you a thousand dollars, right? It's a stimulus check. Right. Yeah. You get a stimulus, <laughs> check, stimulus check and and federal land, right? You know, he, he gives, he donates his parks. That's that sort of what Caesar's will is. And this is what finally gets the, the crowds back on Anthony's side, but he has to manipulate them. If he just got up there and, and started denouncing Brutus, it wouldn't have worked. He had to actually right. play the strings. And, you know, I, I thought about this this the other day. Um, so I think a couple of weeks ago, you know, they had the CPAC, the conservative yeah. gathering or whatever. And it was at Hyatt Hotels. Yeah. Okay. Hyatt Hotel was hosting this thing and, and a bunch of people decided to boycott Hyatt Hotels because they hosted this event. And as a result, started going after saying, let's boycott Hyatt Hotels and Michael Hyatt, you know, the, the leadership author. And Michael Hyatt had to get on Twitter <laughs> and be like, there's people who are trying to boycott Hyatt Hotels over CPAC and want to boycott me. I have nothing to do with Hyatt Hotels. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm just sitting there going like, tear him for his bad verses. Right. Yes. The name's the yes. same. It'll do in a pinch because at that point, mobs unleashed and any pretext will do, right? Yes. Just point them in a direction and th that energy has got to go somewhere. And this is what I think Brutus unleashes and why he's constantly then in the rest of the play trying to rein it in. Cassius is the guy who's like, hey, look, if we've got to pay people off, we got to bribe people, we got to get it done because we're fighting a war. And Brutus is like, no, no, we don't do that because we're the good revolutionaries. 
Right. We're, you know, yeah. we're, we do it, we do it the right way. And we yes. can't, and you can't contain uh, one of the things there that's interesting is you really can't, that reveals sort of, again, sort of people's cutthroatness to some extent, but it's like, once you start the fire, you really can't contain it. Like once, exactly you, right. once that rhetorical fire leads the crowd, you actually can't just say, okay, let's stop here. Yep. That's not how this works. And, and the people who realize that, uh, Mark Antony in some ways really realizes that, like, well, of course it's not going to stop. But I don't want it to. I actually want it to burn, you I know. Uh, 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 but it's, you know, uh, yeah. There's a real, there's a realism there. But yeah. So let me ask you then, because um, we're sort of winding down yep. here. But yep. one thing I do want to, one thing I do want to ask you, Joe, is if it can't stop this, right? Yeah. Because we find ourselves, like you said, Twitter. We're talking about all these things with CPAC. We find ourselves in a rhetorically charged environment in America, totally polarized totally at war with one another, ready to cancel everyone. That goes for the right and the left, where we just want to cancel anybody that we don't like. Yep. Um, and if we, if the fire gets going, and that's like James 3 stuff, you know, the yep. tongue sets the whole world on fire. Yep. Uh, then how do we move into the public sphere? And maybe you don't, you know, damn it off and stop it from spreading that maybe that's impossible, but maybe there is a way to curb it and use the energy that's going and sort of push it back towards something, deflect it back towards the good. And what yeah. does that even look like? Yeah. Um, if you don't have a position of power where your voice is an authority and you, you can actually set the tone, how do we just in our everyday context how do how can we sort of like take all the energy and use it against itself to push it towards something better? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure that I've got a, a great answer for that. You, you must know, have so, an answer, Joe. I, that's right. Like, <laughs> We're uh, not having you, know, you back on if you don't answer the question. Okay. okay. Well, uh, I'll give it a shot. So the you know one of the things about it is I think Shakespeare's brilliant in describing and portraying the dynamics. Okay, but even he on this play, and I'm not sure in very many. Um, uh, shows a good answer. Like he doesn't, he doesn't have an antidote. The right. closest I think he comes is uh, in Henry V. Um, what makes Henry such a, a capable king is he recognizes the value of sort of wearing different faces in different places. So um, there's a way as a, yes. ruler, as a ruler, in other words, he knows there's a time when I've got to be the king and I got to step up and use the rhetoric and stir people up. And so, you know, uh, there's the famous once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more, it's like the original Braveheart speech or whatever yeah. um, on stage. And let's close the wall up with our English dead. And he's like, let's go imitate the act. And so he's like, this is the, it's the football coach speech. Let's win one. Um, but then there's these other moments where he's like speaking softly um, there's times where he, he, you know, he threatens to be Herod in that play um, in order to conquer a city. Like if you guys don't, you know, open your gates and, and let us in, then I'm going to turn my soldiers loose and they will, you know, rape and pillage their way through your town. And right. it's precisely by threatening that, that he gets them to relent and doesn't have to do it. Right. So there's this really kind of shrewd rhetoric thing happening there. But Henry kind of realizes that you've got to, um, there's different words that are appropriate in different occasions occasions, which is one of the things that the internet in you know, our friend, Alistair, right. Talks about this all the time. Alistair Roberts. Yeah. The, sort of the way that, that mass communication obliterates different lanes. Right. There's things that there's things that I would say in a sermon. And then there's things I would say in a counseling room. And there's things I would say in a classroom. And there's right. things I would say in a, you know, like all of these different in an interview and they're all different lanes that have different sort of rhetorical rules, different yeah. ways of ordering speech. That's right. And the, the internet just obliterates all of that because yeah. everything is just flattened. And, uh, and so I think, so, and it, Henry gets it. So basically Henry's able to sort of maintain uh, the cultural order by speaking in different ways at different times. Yes. Um, yeah. and, and I think, so I think that even if we're not rulers, we should be cultivating that sort of thing and that sort of awareness in our own sort of little platoons, um, whether yeah. that's our families, whether that's our churches, yeah. our, our communities, where um, we want to be immune to the manipulations of, of the Antonys of the world and the mob. Um, we want to be brutally honest with ourselves about our actual motives. We want to have, right. a, uh, I think one of the big things is we want to have a standard for what the good is, um, that's fixed and immovable and that there just are certain things that you don't do. 
And, mm. and I think this is where we're, you know, when speaking as a Christian, so reading the great books in light of the greatest book, um, we have to be prepared to be martyred. And I don't just mean in a, in the actual physical. Yeah, sure. Sure. Sense, but I mean, there, there is a sense in which, um, you know, Chesterton's quote, you know, Christianity's died many times, but that's okay. Cause it follows a God who knows his way out of the grave. Right. Um, and so you play for keeps if you think that this is all there is. But if you know for a fact that God loves to tell death and resurrection stories, then you don't feel like oh, I've got to win at all costs. Right. Right. Mm. God has his own way of winning. And I want to cultivate a sort of cruciform um, community in my own around my, in my little platoon and and be willing to say, we're going to testify. We're going to speak the truth. We're going to pursue the good. Um, we're going to love God. We're going to love our neighbors regardless. And, and then let the consequences come what may, whether that means we end up being sin of the poet, right? right. <laughs> if you wind yeah. up sort of on the receiving the end of, of, of yeah. sin of the poet or not, um, that's, that's, I think, what, what we're called to. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just add, I'll, I'll just add one line to that again, as I think, um, I think that's very insightful, especially the comment about you know, you're, you're speaking differently in different circumstances and the internet's complicating that. So it's like learning how to communicate publicly on the internet. Here we are doing that right now. Yeah. Is a, is a, is a somewhat complicated affair and is, it is, it is going to take fresh acts of wisdom for the church to calibrate itself to this, to this new media in, in some sense. But uh, what I, one thing I, I would, I would just sort of reiterate is, uh, Rhetoric is also the answer in some ways. So it's like rhetoric is our problem, uh, yeah. but it's also our answer. It's like it's like the, what it looks like to tell the truth is rhetorical. It mm -hmm. still yeah. takes a form, and so it's like what does maybe maybe one way of framing the question would just be like what does what does what does rhetoric in the act of telling the truth look like? And yeah. I think that that's going to go along with what you said, Joe. A lot of it is going to be it, that absolutely has to look like somebody who's who is attempting to be brutally honest and self-aware about their own motivations, yep. and that is interesting. You don't see uh, you don't see that in Brutus. Actually, mm -hmm. you don't see a lot of going inward to look at. Am I really well motivated here? He yeah. knows he he knows he's well motivated the whole time. Yeah, it's should I do this thing or not? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, and that's yeah, that's an interesting interesting thing. Yeah, and I think just as one little cap on this point is, um, and then we'll and then we'll close her down. But it's, so this is why it's so important that Christians should number one study rhetoric. Uh, learn what good rhetoric sounds like, learn what bad rhetoric sounds like, and learn how to use rhetoric in convincing and compelling ways. Yep. We should be the fragrance of Christ in the world. People yep. should get a whiff of us. They should get a whiff of Jesus when we open our mouths. And uh, I think that's so important because like when I watch comment sections and like just grammar rules are not even understood by people right. in the world today. And, and, and then the sharp tongueedness and the just ill constructed sentences and the poor communication skills that a lot of people have within the church, conservatives on the left and, the, uh, and liberals alike, like when they're talking about the most important things that we're dealing with in the moment, the rhetoric is so poor. Yeah. That I, you know, it's like, go back and read guys yeah. and go read some books, go sit down with a good book. And, and when it hits you, like when you, when it becomes difficult, I was just having this conversation with my son last night. I said, son, here's a good indication that you're trying really hard. When you are, when you get to the point in your schoolwork where you feel like you just can't figure it out anymore figure it out even harder, you know, like go, yeah. go even more. Uh -huh. Um, and if, so this is sort of ranty, I'm sorry, but I guess the point that I want to get across is in an age where uh, communication is so easy and so widespread and can be done from a platform like that at, at a, you know, a moment's notice, learn how to do it well. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> in, an age, in an age when communication is so easy, why are we so bad at it? Um, yeah, yeah, right. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, and you know, there's ways in which, um, you know, when I think about what Anthony does, for example, in the in the manipulation speech, I think that there's lots of things. I mean, that's a masterclass. The issue is what's he trying to do? And it's he's right. trying to strip the mob to turn them loose. And he, he at the end of his thing, when they when they all go off and burn and loot and everything else, he says, 
mischief, let it work. And he's just kind of like, he just, you know, start, he, he did start the fire, right? We right. Did start the fire. He did start the fire and right. just turned it loose. And we don't, we don't want to do that, but we would, yeah. well, you want to pay attention to how does he, how does he effective? Like, what does he use in terms of, um, you know, one good example, uh, this is actually from Cassius when he's talking to Casca, trying to get him in and, and uh, all of these like signs and portents in the heavens happening. And Cassius says, uh, well, this night reminds me of a certain person, you know, prodigious grown, monstrous, etc. but he doesn't name him. And then Casca says, it's Caesar that you mean, isn't it Cassius? And one of the things I, I talk to my students about is like, guys, that's what I do to you guys all the time. I, I feed you enough to let you draw the conclusion. Right. Yes. Because I know that rhetorically, and like, this is how human beings are wired, like, it will stick more if you're the one who has the penny drop, as opposed to me just stating it outright. Right. In fact, one of the reasons that Brutus versus Antony is a rhetorician, you know, it's funny when, when Antony's like, if I was only a rhetorician like Brutus, I could stir you up and turn you loose while he's stirring them up to turn them loose, right? Yes. Like Brutus yes. is the great orator. I'm not. But Brutus yes. isn't the great orator. He just comes out. He's very just kind of like, I'm honorable. Caesar was ambitious. That's why I did it. It's, right. And so there's ways in which like, guys, when I'm, when I'm teaching you, I'm trying to get it to where I'm setting up the pieces so that you can have the aha moment because that will stick longer. That will. And so that's good. If what right. I'm trying to get to stick is good. Yes. Very yeah. good. With well, that could be a whole new conversation. Yeah. So I, got uh, that's to, right. I got a lot to say about that. That's right. Well, bro brother, thank you so much for coming on. It's always yes, a pleasure you. to chat with you Yeah. and, uh, and we'll do okay. it again. Uh, I know that we're planning on talking, I guess sometime in the future on another Lewis work. So we'll be in touch about yeah, that. That'd be great. Uh, but as always, guys, you can head over to davenantinstitute.org, subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can find us on Facebook, Pilgrim Faith Podcast, join the conversation. Um, but uh, as always, we're, we'll see you next week. And Joe, I love you, brother. Love you, man. And we'll talk to you soon, Rigney. Thank you. Yeah, see you guys. See you.